and welcome! I'm Joanna Junak and this is the next GFN News on GFN.tv. In today's news. Bent Wiebert, Snus user and consumer advocate will join us for the second part of our interview about Snus. Martin Kalib, International Fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance Consumer Center on confused messages about vaping from the Canadian authorities. The Treasury Secretary of Kenya has revealed plans to raise excise tax on nicotine products. Will Godfrey of Filter Magazine will tell us about what happened at the e-cigarette summit in Washington, D.C. And after the news, Brent Stafford of Rekwatch interviews Dr. Ronald Dworkin, an American anesthesiologist and political scientist. In the last episode, Bent explained why snus is so popular in Sweden and explored what is internationally known as the Swedish experience. In today's episode, we will hear more from Bent on the product's potential and the challenges snus uses outside the Sweden face. Thank you, Bent, for joining us again. Snus has been beneficial in reducing smoking rates in Sweden. So, why is it banned in the European Union? That's a very good question. Uh, basically, I would say it's due to politics. It was, uh, uh, I asked uh, the Dr. Carl Fagerström, why, how come it is so difficult to, uh, to, to accept snooze in the European Union? And Carl Fagerström replied to me, it's much more difficult to admit that you have been wrong. Uh, and uh, that is probably why. It started in, in the end of the 80s. There was uh, a very aggressive marketing for, for a brand called Skull Bandits in the UK. So UK actually proposed to the European Union to ban snooze. So as of today, snooze or smokeless tobacco that is used for sucking, that's the quote from European Union, is banned, while products such as uh, chew bags, which looks identical to, to snooze, but it has cut tobacco instead of grain tobacco, that is allowed. You have um, very dangerous forms of smokeless tobacco coming from Africa and Asia, which can be bought in, in any European Union country. So the only product, the product that has made Sweden more or less smoke-free is still banned in the European Union. And I was there in, in the snooze trial hearing together with the New Nicotine Alliance uh, in January 2018. And uh, to hear the EU lawyers saying that the reason why Swedish males have stopped smoking is due to paternity leave or the healthy living style of Swedish men. And of course, this is 100% fake facts. There is no such evidence whatsoever. However, we do use uh, snooze in a much higher degree than we are smoking. You can find snooze in uh, very much in Sweden, of course, uh, Norway, uh, Canada, United States, Japan, Korea, and, and other countries. And uh, 
as for myself, uh, I, I think SNOOFs should be available in any country in the world where there are still a lot of people smoking. How did Sweden manage to escape the Europe-wide ban? I would say it's, um, it's quite simple because <clears throat> we have such high rate and long 200-year tradition of snooze use in Sweden. So uh, when Sweden was joining the European Union, the Swedish government said that we will not join the European Union unless we can continue using our snooze. Um, so Sweden got an exception which is permanent in the European Union and the only reason to, uh, uh, how do you say, to ban snooze use in Sweden is that is if uh, every European Union country is banning it, including Sweden. And that, that will never happen because, like I said, uh, over 20% of Swedish males are using snooze and uh, close to 10% or maybe 8% of the women are using snooze. And looking at the science, uh, I think it's about 80% of those using snooze are former smokers that had quit smoking for good. So that will never, that will never change. And um, the reason why you can find snooze uh, or, or moist enough products in America is that Swedish immigrants in the 1800s they brought along with them um, snooze. So it sort of continued over in North America. And um, in 2019, eight brands of snooze was the first modified risk tobacco product in FDA history, MRTP, which means actually that you can market it, and it is, uh, according to FDA, appropriate for public health. A recent study from Finland has shown that snooze is becoming increasingly popular among younger adults. Why do you believe they choose this kind of smoker's tobacco product? I can only quote uh, Finnish newspapers and, and Finnish TV on this. It's, it's, it seems like smoking is uncool and snooze is cool in Finland. Mind you, uh, as we mentioned before, the sale of snooze is forbidden in the European Union with the exception of Sweden. But there is no, no restrictions as to the use of snooze. And for example, Sweden and Finland are neighboring countries and you are allowed to bring in 1,000 grams, which is one kilo of snooze for personal use uh, without uh, any problems at all. And in, uh, in Finland, um, so there's, there's a lot of uh, border crossings and border sales. In Finland, nicotine pouches without tobacco are allowed, but they have a limit of four milligram per gram uh, per pouch. But it's funny when something is forbidden to sell 
in a country. And what we see in Finland, I, I, my guess is there are about 200,000 snus user or nicotine pouch users in Finland. And what we see there without any, uh, how do you say, promotion from the Finnish government, the smoking rates among young adults in Finland has dropped dramatically and being replaced in a high degree by the use of snooze. Uh, the Finnish TV, uh, if I remember correct, uh, estimated that the sale of snooze on the black market in Finland is worth some 50 million euros. Thank you, Ben, for sharing your expertise with us. A consultation of the Legislative Review of the Tobacco and Vaping Products Act in Canada closed on April 27 this year. The review of the Act focused primarily on vaping provisions and protecting young people from vaping initiation. However, the consultation on vaping seems to be confusing both health policymakers and the public. Joining us today is Martin Kalib, International Fellow at the Taxpayers Protection Alliance Consumer Center in Washington, D.C. Martin will tell us more about the situation in Canada. Martin, thank you for joining us. Can you tell us more about this consultation? Okay. Um, yeah, there's been a series of consultations in, in Canada. There was, uh, I think the first one was on advertising regulations. There was one on raising the nicotine limit, uh, or a nicotine cap, sorry, of uh, 20 mil. And then there was one which finished in September last year, which was on a, poss a possible ban on, on um, flavoured vaping products. And now they're having another consultation, which is ongoing and it seems to be heading in the same direction but this current consultation has only focused on negatives it hasn't focused on any positives at all it's, it's said about uh, raising the the awareness of health hazards about the threats to uh, to um, youth of vaping but there's nothing there to actually accurately educate the public as to what these products can do and therefore it's it's come about that only 4.3 percent of the canadian public are, are aware that vaping products are very much less harmful than cigarettes. Have consumer advocacy organizations been actively involved in the consultation? Well, Canada's got a consumer association called Rights for Vapors. Uh, they're working very hard. They had a webinar uh, in a, a few months ago, which was in conjunction with Health Canada. So they are engaging with Health Canada, but Health Canada are, are very, very, um, cautious about vaping products and, and even the webinar was very strictly controlled as to who could ask questions and who couldn't. Um, but at least they are engaged with Health Canada, but how far that would take them, who knows. What do you think Canadian vapers make of the situation? Um, well, I think they're probably as mystified as the rest of us about what's happening in Canada. Canada was at one point uh, probably the most progressive, maybe with the exception of the UK, one of the most progressive countries towards vaping especially. Uh, but then something seems to have happened in the corridors of power somewhere and they've gone completely the other way. They, I mean, they used to have ideas of, of groundbreaking ideas like having risk proportionate messaging on vaping products, uh, such as this product may cause a dependence on, on nicotine, but it's far better for you than smoking messages like that, positive messages. But those have vanished now and they're now seeming to go the other way into a more 
prohibitionist approach and we don't know if that's come about because it's been swayed by what's happening in America or because um, maybe some funding has come in but it's such a shame because the same division in Canada that deals with harm reduction in drugs and has very progressive policies towards drugs are doing the complete opposite when it comes to harm reduction for tobacco. And what do you think will happen in Canada over the next few months? Well, it seems to be at the moment direction of travel in the wrong way. But hopefully they rights and papers are working hard. As I said, um, uh, my organisation put in a consultation response. I know some very prominent uh, advocates for harm reduction have done the same. And it would be nice if those, those responses were read and, and some of the ideas were taken on board. And whoever is pulling the strings there and whoever has changed the progress from towards harm reduction to against it, hopefully they'll have a rethink and we can see something more positive, but who knows. Thank you, Martin. The Kenyan Treasury Cabinet Secretary has recently announced proposals to change the excise tax on nicotine illiquid with the aim of reducing accessibility for users including schoolchildren and young people. But these new proposals could ensure smokers who are looking for safer alternative products keep smoking or help the black market in unregulated vaping products to flourish. We asked Joseph Maguero, CASA chairman, a few questions. Joseph, can you tell us who has proposed the higher tax on e-cigarettes and why? Uh, uh, thank you for the question. So in the finance bill, the cabinet secretary revealed plans to more than double the excise on tobacco-free products. Uh, the average tax increase for excisable goods was 10%, with nicotine products being the only, only ones hit with a 108% increase. So this was the cabinet secretary for the government for finance. What would be the impact of smokers in Kenya and in Africa more widely if the bill comes into effect? Right. So prohibiting taxes on uh, nicotine pouches and electronic cigarettes are putting these safer options out of reach for millions of smokers who are desperate to quit. Uh, this increase is uh, regressive in so many ways, as well as making safe alternatives unaffordable. The tax sends the message that they're just as harmful traditional cigarettes, even though they're helping to reduce tobacco toll in more progressive countries across the world. Now, uh, what do we expect with the increase in taxes? It will be, this will deter smokers from using tobacco-free nicotine products to help them quit, and it will cause lives as a result. Now we will cross over to Will Godfrey, who attended the annual e-cigarette summit last week. Hi, Will. Hi, Joanna. What were some of the most significant things to come out of it? So the eSig Summit hosts talks and discussions with many scientists, policy experts and consumers, but it's particularly notable as a rare forum for FDA tobacco control officials to be publicly questioned. As you can imagine, with many THR proponents angry about the agency's failure so far to authorize more than a handful of non-flavored vaping products, there was plenty of tension in that room. And some of the sharpest exchanges concerned misinformation. Kathleen Crosby of the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products delivered a presentation in which she patted her agency on the back for its youth prevention campaigns, which, as you know, 
have been widely criticized for bias and fear-mongering. In particular, she lauded what she described as the effectiveness of linking nicotine withdrawal to anxiety and depression in mental health messaging to youth. How did delegates respond? Quite angrily, Dr. Jazjit Aliwalia of Brown University asked whether, in the wake of the Truth Initiative's notorious depression stick campaign, it wasn't inevitable that the wider public in a country, remember, where most doctors wrongly believe that nicotine causes cancer, whether the, the FDA's messaging doesn't make it inevitable that the public will see nicotine as blamed directly for depression. He accused the FDA, as many others have, of spreading misinformation. And THR advocate Clive Bates was applauded when he asked, is it ever right to exaggerate risks to get the behavior change you want? Is it okay to imply by omission or commission that vaping is as harmful as smoking just because you want to deter young people from using these products? What's the ethics of doing that? Misleading people to get behavior change. And how did the FDA officials respond? Well, Matthew Holman, another senior figure at the FDA's Center for Tobacco Products, was involved in a terse exchange on one panel with advocates like vape shop owner Mark Sliss. There are a lot of restrictions on what we can say, how we can say it, the process we have to go through in order to say it publicly that are really challenging, Holman said. And despite what people like you think, we do try our best to communicate that stuff. No, Bates retorted, I do think you try your best. Thank you, Will. Thank you. And now we go over to Brent Stafford and his guest, Dr. Ronald Dworkin, who delivered the Michael Russell oration to the Global Forum on Nicotine in 2019. Dr. Dworkin is an anesthesiologist and political scientist who writes on medicine, philosophy and society. In today's interview, he will tell us more about how the medical profession reacts to tobacco harm reduction and attitudes towards e-cigarettes. Over to you, Brent. Well, hello, Joanna, and thanks for that. And welcome, everybody. I'm Brent Stafford, and this is another segment of RegWatch on GFN.TV. The struggle to secure nicotine vaping products as a viable alternative to smoking grows more frustrating by the day. While the science on vaping continues to show it can be a successful tool to quit smoking, possibly saving tens of millions of lives, the attacks against vaping grow more virulent. Why is that? Vaping supporters are simply asking public health, politicians and regulators to embrace the common sense of harm reduction. But is this request a bridge too far? Joining us today to discuss this question is Dr. Ronald Dworkin. Dr. Dworkin is an anesthesiologist, political scientist and author of four books and numerous magazine essays. He's a lecturer at George Washington University Honors Program and previously served as the Director of Medicine, Society and Culture Program at the Hudson Institute. Dr. Dorkin, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. You have an article published on Quillette titled The Ideological Aversion to Harm Reduction, which you start off with an analogy between putting a patient under general anesthesia and how the medical profession perceives harm reduction. Please explain that for our viewers. Well, I started the essay by saying how anesthesiologists are unusual among doctors in that they, they like combative patients, at least when patients are waking up from anesthesia. It means that the patients have the spirit to overcome the anesthetic and fight the breathing tube in their windpipe uh, and return to life. And uh, if the patient doesn't fight back, that usually means there's a complication of some kind. 
Now, most doctors, of course, don't like this. They prefer passive patients, uh, patients who take orders from the doctors and do what they are told to do. And it is a reason I said why I thought a doctors think harm reduction is sort of strange. The idea of letting patients uh, fight back, uh, ignore the ideas of good health, ignore uh, uh, doctor recommendations, engage in activities that are a little bit harmful, maybe less harmful than the extreme activities, but still somewhat harmful. For example, using clean needles for illicit drug abuse rather than dirty needles, or using e-cigarettes rather than tobacco to get, um, to get nicotine. All this seems rather odd to physicians. And for this reason, I know doctors have not been leaders in any of the major harm reduction movements, whether in e-cigarettes and smoking or needle exchange programs and opiate abuse or birth control and safe, safe, safe sex technologies and uh, the sexual revolution or the designated driver movement and alcohol abuse. Doctors have come around on these issues, but they were never leaders on them. And that was the reason. Smoking provides some unique complications around surgery, does it not? It does. Uh, uh, anesthesiologists are always concerned that smokers, for example, have uh, poor blood circulation. They have respiratory complications, more complications after anesthesia. So we always ask for a smoking history uh, before an operation because uh, you can have serious problems if you have a history, long history of smoking. So what then brought you around to the concept of harm reduction and specifically tobacco harm reduction? Well, I got interested in the subject of harm reduction while working on a larger piece about the public health establishment in the U.S., how I, I thought it had grown a bit arrogant and gone beyond the traditional aspects of public health, for example, infectious disease control and quarantine, and had ventured into other areas, um, for example, taxes, domestic violence, foreign policy, race relations, and so on, armed with a scientific method and using a little bit of a philosophical sleight of hand, uh, public health, I thought, had basically turned every human malady into a potential public health problem giving them the right, they think, to have a seat at the table and make policy on it. And included in this new list of activities that public health had arrogated for itself was people's everyday behavior, uh, and that includes smoking. And the fight against smoking, I will say right out, was an important accomplishment of public health. Um, but the problem is that the excitement um, of public health experience in taking over all these new projects, including everyday human behavior, is that they brought the scientific method to bear uh, and a certain arrogant idealism to bear, ideology I call it, on everyday life problems. And as a result, they began to ignore reality. They began, began to ignore human nature. The fact that some people will want to stupefy themselves with alcohol or nicotine, for example. Uh, the old saying, man and women were pharmacologists before they were farmers because they like to stupefy themselves. And so rather than make the world perfect where people would not smoke, for example, Public health was trying to ban the intermediate or the compromised position uh, where you could use nicotine, maybe not in the form of smoking, but safely in the form of electronic cigarettes. And I thought their opposition to this compromised position, motivated by this extreme ideology, uh, this idea of perfecting human beings, was unreasonable uh, and too idealistic. And as I said, arrogant. Do uh, e-cigarettes work? Do they do the job that's promised by advocates? Yes, I think they I think they do. Uh, it, uh, E-cigarettes are a compromised way of receiving nicotine, safer than using tobacco. There's uh, no carbon monoxide. There's not the problem of tar and other carcinogens. It is a safer method of taking in nicotine than using tobacco. So I think it serves that purpose well. So Ron, when it comes to tobacco harm reduction, does it save lives? And I guess, you know, is it a valid strategy, uh, you know, compared to say, 
you know, something for hard drugs. I do think uh, tobacco harm reduction saves lives. The best thing would be if people didn't smoke at all, but it's difficult for them to stop smoking. As I just said, people do like to stupefy themselves with different chemical agents. If you look at the United States, 60 million Americans use a sleep aid at night, 30 million Americans are on antidepressants, 15 million Americans are on anti-anxiety agents, 15 million Americans abuse alcohol, 65 million Americans are binge drinking at least once a month, 2 million Americans use opioids. So people are not gonna stop stupefying themselves with agents. And so if they're going to use nicotine as their stupefying agent of choice, then I prefer, and I think it's reasonable to infer, that it's safer to do so with, with electronic cigarettes through vaping without the tar and the other carcinogens, carcinogens and without the carbon monoxide found in tobacco. These things cause cancer and other conditions. So uh, it's better to use e-cigarettes than tobacco. Is it even better to use nicotine patches and chewing gum instead of electronic cigarettes? Perhaps, but some people like the experience of inhaling. And if that's the case, and it's a choice between the using tobacco or not using the nicotine patches, then it's better for us to have an intermediate position, which is the electronic cigarettes or the vaping. Um, we don't want to have the perfect become the enemy of the good. You know, Dr. Dworkin, I, I like that term stupefying agent. In a way, it seems that public health, you know, does just simply does not want the stupefying of nicotine to whatever extent that is to be allowed, whereas say like a nicotine patch provides no stupefying. Yeah, yes, I, I think that's true. Uh, I is, when I mentioned that public health has taken for itself, increased its portfolio to include many other aspects of life, including everyday life. And that's the fact that many people like to stupefy themselves with substances and have done so for thousands of years. It's as if the fact that they do so is a public health malady and has to be fixed. But the problem can't be fixed. It can be controlled for in some ways, made safer for both people who use these agents and for society at large, but you'll never rid society of it. And so I think it's better and more sensible to accept that fact than to try to police all kinds of superfaction and get rid of it altogether, which is impossible. It can't be done. Is nicotine the demon that vaping opponents have made it out to be? I think not, no, not relatively speaking. I mean, compared to the other highly addictive stupefying agents, um, uh, cocaine, alcohol, and heroin, nicotine is much safer. Um, at the very least, it's not mood modifying or impairing like the other substances I just mentioned are. Nicotine is not perfectly harmless. It, harmless. it is a drug. Um, sugar and oxygen, for example, they seem perfectly harmless, but they also are drugs. And if used incorrectly, they can cause problems. And so in the case of nicotine, if it is a drug and not perfectly harmless, then doctors think, why risk any problems by taking nicotine at all? Um, just don't take any nicotine. That's the health ideal. And so a policy like harm reduction, where you're going to accept a little unhealthy activity as something acceptable as a baseline, that does seem strange to doctors. What's blocking progress then with the medical profession in terms of accepting THR? Uh, as I just mentioned, the philosophy behind harm reduction uh, does seem strange to doctors. That's part of it. Also, I should know that doctors, like all people, are creatures of habit and they like new things and new approaches, but sometimes it's just easier to practice as one has always practiced and not do the new thing which comes with a learning curve. And so inertia may be another reason why doctors are not interested in harm reduction. And how much do you think that the Evali scare might have played a role in setting THR back? Oh, I think it did play a role. Uh, and unfairly, I believe. Um, the problem with the Evali scare where people got these serious lung infections and some of them died, 
it wasn't the e-cigarettes, electronic cigarettes. It was many of the users, users had laced their electronic cigarettes, their vaping devices with cannabis oils, and they had tampered with the devices. And, and uh, sometimes they had purchased them from informal sources. So the problem wasn't the electronic cigarettes. Indeed, cannabis was more of the problem. But doctors grew scared like other people did, especially when they're already predisposed against e-cigarettes in the first place. And that really hurt the vaping cause. It occurs to me that the problem with the Valley was a real problem with public health because it was such a powerful tool for them. Yeah. Oh, oh there's no question that a Valley scare was leveraged to lead to uh, both on the state and federal level uh, aggressive policing of vaping and more regulation of vaping and making vaping almost getting rid of vaping in certain states. It was the occasion. It was the the useful method, the crisis waiting, um, the opportunity that had waited for the crisis. And that was the crisis. And they people who did not like vaping, they use it as the opportunity to get rid of vaping. So that's what it was. It was the useful political tool to uh, to go against vaping. In uh, your recent article in Quillette, you make a point that surprised me that two thirds of doctors as of 2018 actually, you know, are pro to a certain extent, uh, ends products for use, you know, for people who are smoking. But I mean, that stuns me because generally the medical profession seems to be the biggest problem. Yeah, there has definitely been a sea change among doctors on the question of vaping and electronic cigarettes. Uh, they're more accepting of electronic cigarettes than before. But as I noted in that Colette essay, the medical profession coming around our new healthcare issue isn't usually enough to push it forward. What is usually needed to advance things is a more broad-based ideology that resonates with the larger public. And uh, that happens in the case of other movements that doctors were not particularly advancing or involved in. Usually it was not the medical profession that pushed things forward. It was an ideology and non-doctors who did so. So for example, as I mentioned in the essay, the fitness and diet craze, um, uh, that was pushed forward not by doctors, uh, but by uh, public health people, for example, or corporations that were worried about the um, productivity of their workers. And they had a, an ideology behind it with its own code word. The word was lifestyle. The same was uh, the case of chronic disease. Um, it was a problem, but doctors pretty much ignored it. They were much more interested in acute disease, even as late as the 1970s. But it was pushed um, by public health people in this case and others. And the ideology had its own catchword again, and that catchword was wellness or sometimes healthy aging. And even in the other cases of harm reduction, again, doctors were not pushing this. Um, they came around eventually, but they didn't push it. They didn't move it forward past the goalposts. In the case of birth control, that was pushed by non-doctors. And the ideology there was usually feminism, my body, my choice. And the case of alcohol harm reduction, it was the designated driver concept or slogan. And that was pushed by public health people and the Hollywood people, actually. So doctors, they come around eventually, but they don't lead. Usually they don't lead. And if they do lead, it's not enough. Now, in the article, you also mentioned that non-physicians drunk on ideology are responsible. So are these the people and the kind of ideological thinking you're talking about? Yes. When I talk about an ideology, I'm referring to a, a doctrine or a set of principles that resonates with part of the public uh, and it has an element of hope and aspiration in it. Uh, not just the drive to make the world better, but all, also to create a kind of utopia. And what's holding back harm reduction now in the area of tobacco and opiate abuse, it's not the practical people. It's not, say, the doctors. Uh, they've come around. But it's the non-doctors who are filled with ideology and who imagine a more perfect social order, uh, a more perfect human being, where no stupefying agents of any kind are used. 
and where people search for happiness only with the prescribed and healthy groups. And one finds ideology work among public health people, among politicians, among lay people with no medical background, but who, for example, may be acting as counselors. They are the main reason that harm reduction is being held back, not the doctors. So which side uh, within the political spectrum, uh, you know, is this more applicable to? Is it a left or a right issue or both? Well, the ideology um, against vaping is mostly found on the political left, uh, including the public health establishment. Um, it's less on the political right. Uh, one of the reasons is that most smokers come from uh, are mostly low income working people or what might be called lower middle class. They like vaping and they need vaping to get off cigarettes, get off tobacco. These people tend to vote Republican, and so the conservatives or the right tries not to antagonize them and not tries, to, tries not to push the vape, anti-vaping issue. Um, also, the public health establishment tends to swing left, and one of the public health's great achievements is exposing the dangers of smoking. Anything that suggests backtracking in any way uh, on smoking, in the case of e-cigarettes, the idea of any kind of nicotine delivery device um, is opposed reflexive, reflexively. But that's why anti-vaping is largely on the left and not the right. Would you say, or is it true that anti-vaping ideology has become hegemic? Well, it is in the sense that without an opposing ideology to fight the anti-vaping ideology, um, the vaping cause was not going to advance, I'm afraid. Um, the problem is, the problem for the pro-vaping people is not the lack of good science or not having the ear regulators. Uh, that's not the problem. The problem is more of an ideological one. It's a more a problem of public opinion or you might even say public relations. Unless the vaping movement understands that, it will continue to face these huge obstacles. I know that many people who are vaping advocates are frustrated by the lack of common sense going on within the debate. Yes, because I, I think it, it, this is the problem with ideology. When ideology is involved, common sense often goes out the window because people have such visions of perfection that they envision that they sidestep common sense. They look at common sense not as wisdom, but as an obstacle, and they find it troublesome. And it actually interferes with their ability to get to the utopia they want to achieve. So that's a problem. Harm reduction is a very sensible, level-headed, moderate approach to human life. And utopians, idealists, often don't like that. In a way, has vaping got in the way of their plan uh, for building a better generation of kids? Uh, yes, it has. It, it, it's kind of a, there's a certain kind of a peculiar thinking here. The idea that human beings can be made something sort of a, a straight and follow along a certain groove, a uh, prescribed groove of um, safe activity, a reasonable activity, um, without any kind of irrationalities, uh, that's, that's not possible. Teenagers, some teenagers vape or smoke cigarettes. If they didn't do that, they would find some other vice. Now let's turn to the right, because on the right, is there not a utopia as well that's in the way for vaping, or at least uh, tobacco harm reduction? The issue of vaping on the right, um, on the right, included on the right, the political coalition is the religious right to the degree they still exist. And religion has traditionally looked with suspicion on all sorts of stupefying agents. Uh, because these agents interfere with people's God-given free will, and so they don't like them for that reason. Uh, but uh, politics overrides this concern or suspicion on the right, I think, because they know that their coalition includes people who like vaping. 
So I don't see any, there's no real antagonism toward vaping on the right. There is antagonism towards opiate harm reduction on the right, because there is a suspicion uh, towards all agents that produce a kind of euphoria. So that there is opposition on the right to uh, cannabis legalization or all kinds of drug legalization. Although one finds on the libertarian right, um, there's more sympathy towards that. There's also a law and order uh, aspect of the political right, and they see the crackdown on opiate abuse as another way of uh, enforcing law and order. So it's a little bit complicated on the political right, but in general, I would say that the right is more sympathetic to vaping, more opposed to opiate harm reduction. So what hope is there then if the right has an aversion to THR because of their historical position on hard drugs, and the left doesn't believe tobacco harm reduction is a valid application of the harm reduction principle? Well, there is hope, um, but in the case of tobacco harm reduction, you have to change your strategy. So right now, the vaping cause, it seems dead, um, but if cannabis could come back from the dead, it was hated and despised in the 1980s, and now it's come back from the dead, and uh, it's almost on the verge of legalization, uh, vaping can too. But rather than focus on the science of vaping and working quietly with regular in the FDA to further the cause of vaping, you have to work more in the realm of public opinion and ideology. Uh, as I said in one venue, in the United States government is not so sovereign, public opinion is sovereign, and public opinion moves very slowly, but when it does move, it's decisive. So right now, public opinion, uh, especially the most important aspect of public opinion, which is upper middle class opinion, is opposed to vaping, and so you'll have to turn this around. And there are a few things you can do. So first, you have to stabilize public opinion. You have to work to decrease people's fear about fears about the teenagers vaping. Uh, some of those fears are overblown. Uh, I've cited in that essay, Brad Rodu's work. Brad Rodu is a professor, I believe it, somewhere in Kentucky, who said that rather than 3 million new vapors among teenagers, it's only, only 90,000. Uh, the numbers were overblown because they included 18 and 19 year olds who are adults, and they also included people who are already smoking. Uh, but it scared a lot of people, particularly upper middle class people. So you're going to have to try to find, make sure you have a way to allay the concerns of those people by not, say, pushing flavors that might be uh, um, liked by teenagers. And you also might, at this stage, uh, try to show the medical benefits of nicotine the way cannabis did. Cannabis tried to show its medical benefits in the case of, say, helping cancer pain or nausea. So that's the first stage. And once you've stabilized public opinion, then I think it's important to pursue two tracks. There's vaping for harm reduction, and there's vaping as a consumer product. Um, because nicotine, unlike the other stupefying agents, is not that mood modifying. Uh, I don't mean a product that is easy to get. I don't, I don't mind at this stage, even if nicotine was uh, for by prescription. But I wanted to get established that nicotine or vaping products is for harm reduction, but it's also a stupefying product that can be used for everyday and happiness and anxiety. If upper middle class people can use their Prozac and Elleville, there's no reason others that cannot use their e-cigarettes if they're feeling down. Now, after that's established, the third thing you have to do is you have to have an ideology that is developed to rival the other ideologies along the two tracks. So in the case of harm reduction, you have to have an ideology that acknowledges people are the way they are. They like to stupefy themselves. So we have to let's get real about them. We have to have reality here. The second track is an ideology that declares there is a, an area, a safe space, off limits from the public health establishment and the government in general where people can live the way they want and vape what they want when they come home from a hard day's work. Uh, and this ideology might be an ideology of freedom. And then the fourth phase, tobacco harm reduction within I hope move alongside the other harm reductions, uh, reduction efforts in public health uh, in the portfolio. I mean, there's already 
safe sex products, designated driver concepts, opioid abuse harm reduction. I hope the day when tobacco harm reduction goes into that public health portfolio and becomes legitimate. At the same time, I'd like for vaping then to become also a legitimate consumer product without prescription needs, something to be enjoyed in the realm of freedom and private life. Dr. Dworkin, the Global Forum on Nicotine Conference in Warsaw, Poland is coming up this June 16 to 18. I know that you delivered the Michael Russell oration at GFN in 2019. I'd like to ask you, why is a conference like GFN 22 important to the tobacco harm reduction effort? Because this is where the ideas for moving beyond the science um, get hatched, um, going to other areas such as mobilizing public opinion, improving public relations and so on. To do this, is not the, it's not the kind of thing that is developed in a lab or by combing through statistics alone. This requires dialogue from all the different groups interested in nicotine. Uh, and this is why the forum is so important. It's one of the few opportunities for all the people to get together and for this kind of idea hatching to occur. And you think it's a fight that's winnable? Definitely, but it'll take time. You'll have to play the long game. Don't forget it took 20 years, 30 years for cannabis to go from dead to something that's on the verge of legalization. This will take time too. So you'll have to persevere. It won't be tomorrow or next year. It'll be 10, 20 years. And eventually I think vaping will be both uh, an important part of harm reduction and will become a consumer product, a legitimate consumer product, but it'll take time. Well, that's it for this edition of Reg Watch on GFN.TV. Joanna, back to you. Thank you, Brent and Ronald, for an interesting discussion. That's all for today. Thanks for watching and see you next time for more tobacco harm reduction updates and Brent's forthcoming interview with another GFN22 speaker, Fiona Patton, member for the Northern Metropolitan Region in the Victorian Parliament's Legislative Council. Thank you and goodbye.